So that being said, today we have a fairly difficult topic, but it's also one that it's difficult on two levels. There is issues that are hard for our head to wrap, for us to wrap our minds around, such as the Trinity. There's also pro problems that are hard for us to wrap our heart around, such as, you know, why could God be so wrathful, and why can there be sin and hard things in the Old Testament? And this, today's subject is really both, is if God is good, then why do I hurt? And if that doesn't resonate with you, I would, I mean, I think that resonates with all of us. All of us hurt in this life. And the longer that you live and the better that you love, the more that you hurt. And then the more that this question comes up, God, why did that happen? And we can wrestle with it intellectually and say, if God is good and evil is bad, then why do these two fit together? And we also wrestle with it emotionally. God, you could have stopped that. You did it. What's going on? And this is on my mind because a few weeks ago on Facebook, a friend of mine who I know is suffering posted something. Now, sometimes people post stuff on Facebook and they just want to, you know, poke you. Or they just want to make you mad. But I knew where she was coming from and I knew it came from a place of pain. And what she posted was, I would rather believe that God did not exist than believe that God did not care. And then she wrote under that, prove me wrong. And I thought and thought about what I should say, what I could say. There's things intellectually I could have said to that. But I finally decided not to say anything because I, I, don't, I didn't think that an intellectual argument would help the situation at that point. But what I wanted to say to her, I get what she's saying. I think we all get it. But what I wanted to say to her is, oh sister, don't go there. Don't go there. Because don't you realize that when you give up on, you, on God, you also give up on your right to have moral outrage. If you give up on God, then you also give up on your right to have moral outrage. Because if God does not exist, then absolute right and wrong do not exist. Where's my slide here? Can you go to the next slide? For an action to be right or wrong, there must be a moral law. For there to be a moral law, there needs to be a moral law giver. And God is the only one that can be that moral law giver. And so if you give up on God, then you also give up on the possibility of saying, that was wrong. Now, it's, it's popular to say something like, there is, nothing, there is no such thing as right and wrong. And everything is relative. It's just your perspective, my perspective. There is no right and wrong. And that's really exciting when you have all the power. And many people that think they are victims really have all the power. Because when you are young and you're wealthy and you're healthy and you're winning and things are going your way, it's exciting to say there are no rules because that means you can do whatever you want and nobody can hold you accountable. But when you are a real victim and you are weaker and you have no voice and things were done to you that were not right, there's something that cries out for you for justice. There has to be a right and a wrong. And there is absolute right and wrong, and we have that heart cry. But God is the only way that we can anchor this. Now you might say, well, let's argue that. Maybe there's other ways that we can anchor this, and there's you know, serious academic debates about this. But let's just talk about three ways that people often try and anchor this moral sense of right and wrong. The first way is just conscience. Look, we all know that murder and rape are wrong. Why do we need God to anchor this for us? 
There's two problems with trying to use our conscience as an anchor point for ethics. The first is doubtful origins. Look, if there is no God, we came from evolution. If there is no God, we're basically animals, which means we work and function by instinct. And animals basically work on three different motivations. Food, safety, and procreation. I've got some chickens in my yard. They're fun for the kids. They run around, they squawk. We, didn't have, we don't have roosters this year. Last year we had roosters, which brings a lot more character and noise to the yard. We thought we didn't want that drama this year. Um, but you know, roosters have an opinion, and sometimes they come squawking at you and they wanna you know, yell at you and give you a piece of their mind. But you don't look at that rooster and say, oh wow, I, I better pay attention, I better listen to this rooster. The rooster is motivated by one of three things. Either he wants food, or he feels threatened, or there's some, he wants to procreate, or, or protect his young, or protect the herd, or something like that. It's just instinct. And if we are just animals, then we are just squawking chickens running around pecking each other. And there is nothing that matters about that. So what if you have, if your heart tells you this? So what if your heart tells you that? You are just a squawking chicken on evolution. And your emotions, even your moral sentiments, mean nothing. So doubtful origins. The second, obviously, is conflict. We feel conflict within ourselves. We, we hit a situation that's difficult, we feel love, we feel hate, we want to get involved, we want to run away. We have all these motivations within us. So how, how can our instincts be our guide when our, our instincts are all jumbled up and confused? And that's just within us. And of course we have conflict within our society and some people think one thing is right, other people think something else is right. Obviously our conscience isn't, can't be our guide, it needs to be connected to something else. Our conscience works when it is a signpost for something higher. And that's how we actually talk. We say, this was wrong. And when we say this is wrong, you mean this is wrong on a higher level, on a higher plane. It's like when you come around a, a, a turn on the highway, and maybe you're going a little bit too fast, but don't let anybody know that. But maybe you're coming a little bit faster than you thought, and you see a white car parked in a little pullout. And right away your heart jumps and you... You, maybe you slow down just a little bit, and then you realize, oh, that's not a police car, they're just, it's a car for sale. <laughs> right? Because the white car doesn't mean anything. What means something is the police force and all that that represents. And our conscience means something if it's attached to something else. If our conscience is attached to the moral law, then it means something. And we all believe that it means something. But on atheism, there's, you, you have no right no intellectual, honest right to say that was wrong if God does not exist, because you're, again, just a squawking chicken. So then people will say something like, well, look, we have laws against this. We have laws against murder. We have laws against rape. We have laws against hate speech. We don't need God to, found, to be the foundation of our religion. And this, when people say this seriously, it honestly just makes my blood run cold. This is a terrifying place to go. Because there needs to be something higher than the government. You cannot put the government in the place of God, people. That, we could have a lot of talking about this. But if you look at the nations of the world, there's plenty of places you could say by the statistics, what are the secular nations in the world? But their laws are still based on Judeo-Christian values. Look at some of the countries in the world that are explicitly based on atheism. 
Just have a look at those countries and have a look at how they treat humans. And you'll notice a marked difference between how nations that are founded on, on Christian values treat humans. And that's all I want to say about that. There needs to be something over the government. Government is just power. And you need something guiding power. And the last way might be, what about majority vote? What about democracy? Yeah, but what if you're a minority? What if somebody else, again, has more power than you, a, a stronger voice? They can convince everybody else that what they did was just fine. But you're sitting there saying, but no, it wasn't fine. It wasn't okay. What happened was wrong. It hurt. Popular vote, what about the minorities? Because in life, we hit these situations again where we say what happened was wrong. You should have done this. You didn't do that. You did this to me. There was no need for you to do this to me or to somebody that I love. You have sinned. And it's not just my opinion. My conscience is attached to something higher. And what you did was wrong. It was wrong. Pascal says, Le cœur a ses raisons que la raison ne connaît point. The heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. What he's saying is we can't just only intellectually prove things. There's some things that our heart knows, and maybe you can't argue it out, maybe you can't defend it, but you just know. You just know. And one of the things that we just know is that there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as right and wrong. End of story. Period. That's it. And this is what has been used to develop what's called the moral argument. The next slide. If God exists, there are, if God does not exist, there are no objective right and wrong. But objective right and wrong do exist. Therefore, God exists. If God does not exist, then there is no such thing as right and wrong. But right and wrong do exist. Therefore, God exists. And this is why Voltaire has said, kind of in a humorous way, si Dieu n'existait pas, il pourrait l'inventer. If God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. That's how strong this argument is. God must exist, because how else could we anchor this? We know that right and wrong exist. And if you think about it long enough, you realize that that proves that God exists. So we believe, we all know that evil exists. We all know that right and wrong exists. And if if we think about it, we can realize how that proves God. But that doesn't end the conversation. Oh no, we're just getting started. If God exists, and if evil exists, then how do these two fit together? We could look at, and this is a problem that's even older than Christianity. We can look at the next slide. Epicurus, um, 340, 270 before Christ. This is in the silent years between uh, the, the Testaments. Came up with this argument. If God were all loving, he would want to eliminate evil. If God were all powerful, he could eliminate evil. But evil exists. Therefore, no such God exists. It's a pretty strong argument, isn't it? God was loving, he would want to remove evil. If he was all powerful, he could remove evil. But there's evil. So I guess God doesn't exist. I'd like to question this idea of if God was all-powerful, he could eliminate evil. Sometimes we, are, in our talk, we're a little bit incautious, and we say things like, God can do anything. 
Um, there's a worship song where we repeat, all things are possible, all things are possible. What do we mean when we say God can do anything? Anything? What? There isn't a verse, by the way, that says that. God is all-powerful, but it doesn't say that God can do anything. But you have before you a coffee cup, right? And this coffee cup exists in space and time and matter at this location, all right? This four-dimensional place, there is a coffee cup. There is not a bouquet of roses right here. There's a coffee cup. Do you all agree? Can I get an amen? All right. God had a choice. Either there could be a coffee cup on this pedestal thing at this time in history in this place, or there could be a bouquet of roses, or there could be nothing. But there couldn't be both a, a coffee cup and a bouquet at the same place at the same time. The very act of creating in space, time, and matter is an act of decision. And God had to decide what he was going to make. And God can't create things that are logically inconsistent. God could not create, for example, a square circle. God could create a circle, maybe make a, what, a, a, a dandelion, a nice circle there. Or he could make a triangle. Not many triangles in nature. But he could make a triangle. But he couldn't make a circle that is a triangle because those two are mutually exclusive. He could make a bachelor, he could marry a married man, but he couldn't make them both at the same time because by definition they don't, it doesn't make sense. And this leads to what is known as the free will defense of, uh, for the problem of evil. I think that's the next slide. God created only good things. Free will is a good thing. And through our good free will, which is good, we have created evil. So that's, again, fairly intellectual. How does that connect? What does that mean to our hearts? Look, God had exactly the same sort of decision before him when he was creating the world as a lot of young, a lot of young couples have before them when they're just starting off in life. We have each other. It's great. Married. Have a house. Should we get a puppy? Would that be a nice next step? Maybe a house plant? Cat? Goldfish? Or should we have a child? What's next for us? You know, and, and we're laughing because we've had those conversations, right? What's next for us? Because let's face it, a puppy is a safe option, right? A puppy is going to love you unconditionally. A puppy is never going to break your heart. A puppy is never going to betray you. A puppy is never going to post embarrassing pictures about you on Instagram. <laughs> a, a puppy is never going to, you know, say I hate you and, and leave or make devastating life choices. But a human being, a child, can make all those sorts of decisions. And so it's a terrifying thing to think about bringing a child into the world. But a puppy can also never sin and then repent and come back and say, Dad, I'm sorry. A puppy can never grow emotionally, spiritually into becoming a man of God or a woman of God that you're proud of and you say, that's my boy, that's my girl. A puppy can never learn through the, the suffering and the tragedy and the devastation of life to become a wounded yet compassionate and strong and limping warrior as we hope that our children become. What would it be like for God to have created humans without free will? We wouldn't be humans. 
being a human means having free will. And out of, yeah. So that's the intellectual explanation of why God allowed suffering. But when we hit suffering, when we really hit suffering, there's going to be a, a point, a moment in our lives when we say, yes, but. Yes, but. God, you could have stopped that. There's a story in the Bible of Mary and Martha whose brother Lazarus died. And he was sick for a while and Jesus could have come to heal him as he had done many times before, but he didn't. And Jesus waited and then he came. And Mary and Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we have those moments and we say, God, why? Why didn't you come? Why didn't you break through for me? Why did you let this happen? At a certain point, even though it's humans that, that sin, it's humans that, that bring the evil in our world, yes, but God allowed it to happen. Why does God allow this sort of pain into our lives? Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And that sounds great when you're not suffering. But when you are suffering... That's hard to think, God, let this happen. Why? What good could possibly come out of this? What good could possibly come out of this? If we are, I guess I can invite the band to come up now. If there is a God, now let me, let me back up here and say, I think there's something important that I need to say anytime that I talk about the, this question is that it's possible for us to deal with the situations, deal with somebody suffering in the wrong way. And when somebody really hits suffering, they're going to be struggling and questioning. And it's easy for us to run in with all the intellectual answers and say, here's why you're suffering. God wants to do something good with it. God wants to redeem the pain. Uh, when God closes the door, he opens the window. Here's all the stereotypes and answers. When somebody is really suffering, what they need to hear is, God loves you, God cares. And if you have been suffering too, if you have hurt, to say, God has comforted me. And I too um, have felt God's comfort in these situations. But sometimes, when the pain hits deep, it's just hard to forgive God. It's hard. To be like Mary and Martha at the tomb saying, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, this would not have happened. You could have broken the rules just this one time for me. You could have done it. And maybe because we're in this world of sin, whatever, there's a reason. Maybe you want to bring something good out of it. But God, why did this have to happen? And as the band plays, as we do one song, I would like to, God just really brought this image to my mind of a closed fist. And if you wouldn't mind, you don't have to do this, but if, if you would like to, you can just close a fist in front of you. And if you can think inside this fist of every time that God has let you down, where 
You thought God was going to do something and he didn't. Or God should have done something and he didn't. Something happened to you that was not right. And yes, it was a human being that did it, but God let it happen. And every time that you've said, God, I don't think I can trust you again. And I'd encourage you as we do this next song to think about whether you want to forgive God for that. You might say, well, how can you forgive God? God is perfect. I think forgiving God is the same as trusting God again. And if you want to, and if you feel that it's right, I encourage you to think through those things. And when you're ready to open your hand and say, God, I'm, I'm giving this to you. Here you go. I believe in you and I believe and I decide to trust you again with my life. Hosea 6, 1-2 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him.